Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 56. We are going to be covering a slightly lesser well-known serial killer known as the Glamour Girl Slayer or the Lonely Hearts Killer. He terrorized the United States in the 1950s and has at least three confirmed victims. Today's episode is on Harvey Glattman. Harvey Glattman's heinous crimes were marked by a sinister blend of charm, deception, and brutality. In this episode, we'll explore the life and crimes of Harvey Glattman, as well as the twisted psychology that drove him to commit acts of unspeakable horror. But before we delve into the darkness, a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review if you enjoy our content. Your support is what keeps us going as we venture into the darkest corners of true crime. Now, Glattman's MO was to sexually assault young women after having them pose for glamour shots. He would strangle his victims to death before disposing of their bodies in the desert. Judith Dull, Ruth McCardo, and Shirley Ann Bridgeford are three of his confirmed victims. Harvey would not be apprehended until his fourth potential victim survived and would lead the authorities to her attacker, ending the Glamour Girl Slayer's horrific spree. However, signs of Harvey's violent inclinations and bizarre fixation with rope were apparent from an astonishingly early age. The only child of Albert Henry and Ophelia Glattman, Harvey was born on December 10, 1927, in the Bronx, New York. Early in his life, the family would relocate to Denver, Colorado. He was of Polish and Russian Jewish ancestry. He would display antisocial and sadomasochistic inclinations from early on. As a child, he was introverted and socially awkward, making it difficult for him to forge meaningful connections with his peers. According to Geringer for Crime Library, at four years old, his parents noticed for the first time that something wasn't quite right with their child. Ophelia happened to see Harvey engaging in a rudimentary act of sadomasochism in his room. Ophelia testified during Harvey's 1958 court case that he had tied a string around his penis and placed the loose end in a drawer, and then he would lean back against the string. The parents chose to ignore the behavior, viewing it as the eccentricities of an observant, curious child. When his father found him masturbating and told him that it was the source of his acne, that was the extent of their reaction, if any at all. They were unaware that the thread symbolized a neuroses that would spiral out of control and involve self-punishment as well as punishment. The string would eventually be swapped out for a rope, which would become his later fixation. The rope fetish would dog Glattman throughout his life and ultimately land him on death row. Glattman only a few years later would get into the practice of putting a rope around his neck, threading it through the bathtub drain, and pulling it taut on his throat. He would be only around 12 years old. He was then taken to the family doctor by his mother, who only said that he would simply grow out of this. And spoiler alert, Glattman would not simply grow out of this behavior. When he was a teenager, he began sneaking into women's apartments and taking various things, such as lingerie, and even once a rifle. He would eventually turn to pursuing women and abusing them sexually, and on May 18, 1945, he became reckless. He was apprehended by police while attempting to break through Elma Hamoum's apartment window on Vrain Street. 
They discovered a 25 caliber revolver and a length of rope in his pockets. He admitted to other burglaries during his interrogation that evening, but he would omit the ones that had involved rape. His lesson had not been learned, because in less than two months, as he was awaiting trial for the burglary charge, he would kidnap Noreen Laurel from her neighborhood and take her to Sunshine Canyon out of town after binding her. He brought her back to Denver after assaulting her just before dawn. Now she would proceed directly to the police station and would pick him out from a book of mugshots. He was arrested again and held until his trial in November, after which he only received a one-year sentence to Colorado State Prison. But remember, at this point, he's still only 17 years old. Harvey would be released from Colorado State Prison on parole after serving only eight of his 12-month term, and on July 27, 1946, he was released. And to try and prevent her son from continuing with his illegal activities, his mother would bring him to a psychiatrist, who suggested that Harvey's extreme fear of women was the root of his condition. And the solution he proposed? Well, it's that Harvey should start engaging in things that put him at ease around ladies, like dancing, in order to quell his anxiety. Now, Harvey would not do this, and instead continued to rob and sexually assault women. Eventually, he was arrested again and convicted. This time, he received a 5-10 to 10 year sentence to serve at Elmira Reformatory, but was moved to Sing Sing to complete the remaining portion of his sentence two years later. Glattman's diagnosis of psychopathic personality, schizophrenic type having sexually perverted impulses as the basis of his criminality was made while he was incarcerated. Unfortunately, other than a case study completed shortly after his admission, no documentation of his mental health assessments at Sing Sing have survived. But the new prisoner is described in that cursory report as, quote, not definitely mentally defective or psychotic, but it also recommends that he be psychoeducated, and if still antisocial, should be segregated even if schizophrenia does not seem developed. Harvey was a model prisoner with a high IQ, competence, and passion for his prison work, according to parole reports that have survived. He also responded favorably to periodic medical examinations. Michael Newton, a crime reporter who has spent years researching Harvey and the psychology of serial killers in general, said, quote, Sociopathic sex offenders learn to play the system early on, sometimes as children. After they have been arrested several times and spent time in jail, as Harvey had, they know exactly what to say and how to act in any given situation, whether dealing with police, attorneys, or psychologists. Despite solemn assurances to the contrary, many sociopaths are fully capable of beating polygraphs, manipulating the results of psychological evaluation tests, and making therapists believe they have been cured. Benefits for good behavior would reduce Harvey's minimum five-year term by a certain percentage, and he'd be released from prison after just two years and eight months. But conditions included that he had to go back to his mother's care, get a full-time job, and spend a further four and a half years under court supervision. But he would do all of that, and in September 1956, Harvey was granted complete freedom. He'd relocate to Los Angeles in 1957, where he studied photography and started working as a television repairman to make ends meet. It was in LA that his crime soon became more serious. He sought solace in the world of photography, 
which would later become a sinister tool in his crimes. Photography allowed him to observe, control, and manipulate his subjects, a practice that would take a dark turn in his adult life. Harvey would begin pretending to be a photographer for a modeling agency and started contacting young aspiring models or actresses to carry out his homicidal fantasies. Judy Ann Dahl, a 19-year-old model, was his first confirmed victim. She was fighting a costly and drawn-out custody battle with her husband for their child. So she leaped at the chance to be featured on the cover of a novel when a photographer called her and offered her a much-needed $50. Again, according to Geringer for Crime Library, in his book Signature Killers, Robert Keppel describes how Harvey's photos served as his personal signature of murder in a chapter devoted solely to Glattman. His photos were more than souvenirs because in Glattman's mind, they actually carried the power of his need for bondage and control. The women were depicted in a variety of positions, including sitting and lying down with their hands always clasped behind their backs and innocent expressions on their face, but terrified eyes from having predicted what would happen. After he took Judy's photos, he took her to a remote area in the desert outside of Los Angeles, where he killed her by strangulation. According to Pilati for allthatsinteresting.com, Glattman would later tell police, I would make them kneel down. With everyone, it was the same. With the gun on them, I would tie this five-foot piece of rope around their ankles. Then I would loop it up around their neck. Then I would stand there and keep pulling until they quit struggling. Shirley Ann Bridgeford, a 24-year-old divorcee and model whom Harvey had contacted through a Lonely Hearts advertisement under the fictitious name George Williams, was his second victim. Under the guise of escorting her to a dance club, Harvey picked up Shirley and instead of bringing her to a dance club, would take her into the desert where he raped, bound, and snapped photos of her. He would kill her and abandon her body to the desert wind and animals to ravage. Like with Judy, Glattman used a modeling agency to locate his next victim, Ruth Mercado, a 24-year-old. He found out she was feeling too sick to attend the scheduled photo shoot when he got to her house. Even after learning this, Harvey would go back to her home only a few hours later. He let himself in and proceeded to repeatedly rape her during the night at gunpoint. Afterwards, Harvey made her walk outside to his car in the morning, and once there, he drove her out into the desert and strangled her to death the way he always did. In the summer of 1958, Harvey would stumble upon the Diane Studio, a well-regarded modeling agency located on Sunset Boulevard. This establishment was known for its higher rates, but it had a strong reputation, as its models frequently found themselves in the spotlight of magazine advertisements and TV commercials. Diane, the owner of the studio, was not just a businesswoman, she also occasionally took on the role of the model herself. Naturally, the studio attracted photographers, including people like Harvey, who were willing to pay as much as $30 an hour. On October 27th in the late afternoon, Harvey made his way to Diane's studio with the intention of booking a model's time. In reality, he had a particular interest in Diane herself. But she knew him as Frank Johnson and was put off by his disheveled appearance and offensive body odor. She pretended to be occupied with other matters and was unable to accommodate him personally, but she did offer the use of her studio and one of her models if the model agreed to work with him. 
Harvey, going by Frank, agreed to the deal, and Diane proceeded to call a model who had only recently joined her agency the previous week. Lorraine, eager for her first modeling gig, readily accepted the opportunity. Diane made all the necessary arrangements, and Harvey was scheduled to pick up Lorraine at 8 that evening. However, once Harvey left the studio, Diane did call Lorraine back and offered her a word of caution, saying, be careful with this client, he's not professional, and he's a bit unsettling. Lorraine assured Diane she would be cautious, but expressed her gratitude for the advice. That evening, after getting into Harvey's car, Lorraine would later say, quote, I did not become alarmed, however, until we entered the Santa Ana freeway, and he began driving at a tremendous speed. He wouldn't answer my questions or even look at me. Glattman pulled out a revolver and attempted to tie Lorraine's hands, but she began to fight. Even after a bullet skimmed her hip, Lorraine was able to wrestle the gun away from Harvey. They would both end up falling out of his car during the ensuing struggle, right as a police cruiser was passing by. After being detained by the police for the assault, Harvey would voluntarily confess to his three prior murders. Ultimately, he would lead investigators to a toolbox containing pictures of the three murder victims, along with other mementos from his crimes, such as ID cards and underwear. The evidence to his murders were literally there in black and white. They were images of Glattman's detailed methodology of murder, which showed a sequence of terror by recreating the entire psychological arc of the crime. And this is from Dr. Robert Keppel, which he explains in his book, Signature Killers. He first photographed each victim with a look of innocence on her face, as if she were truly enjoying a modeling session. The next series represented a sadist view of a sexually terrorized victim, with the impending horror of a slow and painful death etched across her face. The final frame depicted the victim's position that Glattman himself had arranged after he strangled her. These were the central phases of Harvey's signature of serial murder. His only motive from the outset was to torture and kill, to punish them before and after their death. Since Harvey had confessed directly to police, he entered a plea of guilty and would then go on to make several requests to be executed. He even made an effort to override California's automatic appeal process for death sentence cases. Now a convicted murderer, he was moved to San Quentin's prison's death row. Charles Manson and Richard the Night Stalker Ramirez would subsequently share that same cell he was assigned, which was set apart from other prisoners. On September 18, 1959, the day of his early execution, he was led into the notorious green room at San Quentin to breathe in cyanide. He died on September 18, 1959, at 10.12 a.m. Now, you might think that that's the end of the story, but there is a more modern development, and it involves the discovery of the identity of the Colorado Jane Doe. She was, in fact, Dorothy Gay Howard, a young woman of 18 from Phoenix, Arizona. Her life, seemingly ordinary, was about to be entwined in one of Colorado's most enduring mysteries. For 55 years, her story remained shrouded in darkness, until dogged detective work the tenacity of an obsessed historian, the advance of DNA identification, and the determination of a young woman converged to bring her truth to light. It all started with a gruesome discovery on a spring day in 1954 in Boulder Canyon. The ravaged body found there baffled investigators and became a haunting enigma 
that defied a solution for decades. Little did they know, this mystery would become a testament to the relentless pursuit of truth. According to reporting from the Denver Post, Dorothy's family was left in the dark, initially unaware of a second marriage to a man named Kirkman, and only discovered it through a legal notice in the newspaper after she had already disappeared. And it would be two University of Colorado students hiking near Boulder Falls who would stumble upon her lifeless body. It looked like she had been there for about a week. Her face, once vibrant, was no longer recognizable. She had been stripped of her identity, leaving no trace of personal belongings. The media splashed this case across the front page of newspapers in Boulder and Denver. Speculation about the girl's appearance ran rampant, with police describing her as pretty and extremely feminine. Boulder residents came together to give Jane Doe, as she was then known, a respectful Christian burial in Columbia Cemetery. And this long-forgotten case captured the fascination of historian Sylvia Petman in 1996, leading to an extraordinary effort to exhume Jane Doe's body, extract DNA, and shed light on her identity in her book, Someone's Daughter, in search of justice for Jane Doe. And that's where the story takes a mind-bending twist. When the possibility of a DNA test arose, it shocked Dorothy's sister, who had long assumed her sibling was still alive. With the discovery of Jane Doe's identity, for her family, the revelation was a seismic shift. Suddenly, they realized that the mystery of Dorothy Gay Howard might have intersected with another chilling tale, that of the notorious serial killer Harvey Glattman. New York authorities suspected that Glattman's known crimes might just be the tip of the iceberg, suggesting that Dorothy could have been one of the first taken by Glattman. But for Dorothy's family, the discovery of her fate brought a mix of emotions. Relief that the searching was over, but also the anguish of not knowing how she met her tragic end. And Harvey Glattman's story is a stark reminder of the darkness that can lurk beneath seemingly ordinary lives, and the tireless efforts of those who seek to bring justice to the victims. We've delved into the details of his early life, his disturbing crimes, and the enduring mysteries he's left behind. If you found this episode compelling, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review to help us continue our exploration of true crime's most enigmatic characters. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to unraveling more mysteries with you in the episodes to come. And remember, you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod. We'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.